In those days, there were oceans of light, and cities in the sky, and wild flying beasts of bronze. There were herds of crimson cattle that roared and were taller than castles. There were shrill, viridian things that haunted bleak rivers. It was a time of gods manifesting themselves upon our world in all her aspects. A time of giants who walked on water, of mindless sprites and misshapen creatures who could be summoned by an ill-considered thought, but driven away only on pain of some fearful sacrifice. Of magics, phantasms, unstable nature, impossible events, insane paradoxes, dreams come true, dreams gone awry, of nightmares assuming reality. It was a rich and a dark time, the time of the sword rulers, the time when the Vadag and the Nadrag, age-old enemies, were dying. The time when man, the slave of fear, was emerging, unaware that much of the terror he experienced was the result of nothing else but the fact that he, himself, had come into existence. It was one of many ironies connected with man, who, in those days, called his race Mabdon. The Mabdon lived brief lives and bred prodigiously. Within a few centuries, they rose to dominate the westerly continent on which they had evolved. Superstition stopped them from sending many of their ships towards Vadag and Nadrag lands for another century or two. Gradually, they gained courage where no resistance was offered. They began to feel jealous of the older races. They began to feel malicious. Hello, you're listening to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock-flavoured podcast. On this show, we delve into the last of the Big Four fantasy incarnations of the Eternal Champion in the form of Coram Halen R.C., the Prince in the Scarlet Robe. The first Coram novel, The Knight of the Swords, dates back to 1971, so was also the last of those four to take shape in Moorcock's mind. In his introduction to the 1992 Millennium Edition, he explains the origins of the character. Dear Reader, of all my fantasy stories, those about Coram, Hale and Ace are the only ones founded in a specific language and mythology. Indeed, his story might never have been recorded had it not been for an exceptionally wet Cornish August when the most interesting book I had available was a Cornish English dictionary with no corresponding English Cornish section, which meant I had to go through the whole thing from A to Z and do it myself. To a great extent, the fruit of that exercise is this book, which draws heavily on the Cornish language, Cornwall, and Cornish legendary. It should not be hard to guess, for instance, that Moidle's Mount lies not a mile from Morazian, and the Mabden interlopers are firmly bent on founding the barbarian settlements of Penzance and St Ives. As a boy, I was especially fond of the historical fiction of Sir Arthur Quiller Couch and his fellow Cornish resident Daphne de Maurier, while the West Country in general provided some of the most romantic settings for the stories of Ardy Blackmore, Maurice Barring, Geoffrey Farnall, Raphael Sabatini, 
and all those others who made brigandry and piracy seem such attractive careers. But perhaps my main inspiration came from a later novelist and poet, Henry Treese. For me, his stories of Celtic and Dark Age Britain remain the very best of their kind, and include such wonderful novels as The Golden Strangers and The Great Captains. He was the first author I ever read who made Arthur a living Celtic prince, with human needs and ambitions. With Graves' The White Goddess, Mackenzie's Myths and Legends of the Celts, and Patrick Collum's The King of Ireland's Son, Treese's books are the greatest influence on these particular stories which I dedicate here, with great pleasure to my Cornish friends, especially David Hill, Bill Jekylls and Mike Foreman. Phil and I recently holidayed in Cornwall and I picked up a few pamphlets about Cornish wreckers and various other bits and pieces that really portrayed a picture of Cornwall as quite a, a rough and ready and dangerous place and I think it really is excellent fodder for fantasy fiction and violent adventure tales. But anyway, it's been a while since I've risked putting my back out by pulling Clute and Grant's Encyclopedia of Fantasy off the shelf, but now's as good a time as any, and fortunately Phil's topped up our glucosamine supply so I'm feeling reckless. Of Coram, the two Johns offer the following. Beginning in an earth long before our present world has taken shape, and featuring a hero who is the last of the elf-like Vadag, this series can be seen as a fairly decorous assault upon J.R.R. Tolkien. Coram is much unlike Elric, metaphorically speaking, his back is to the reader, and he engages in his long war against Lord Arioch of Chaos with a certain elegance. Now, I have to confess that I don't really subscribe to the fairly common interpretation of Moorcock's worlds to be of our past, or in the case of Hawkman's tragic millennium Europe, our future. I've always read them as different but vaguely connected worlds, just a few tantalising windows we have onto Moorcock's million spheres. Also, Moorcock's opinion of the Lord of the Rings is well recorded, but the relentless comparisons between the two, and the suggestions that his own fantasies were responses to Tolkien, direct or indirect, are a little bit irksome. The concept of older races predating man is as old as fantastic fiction itself, and it doesn't always have to come back to Tolkien. At some point in the future, I think a panel show on Moorcock's essay, Epic Pooh, and the whole subject of influences and who is and isn't an anarchist or a crypto-fascist can maybe get a bit more room to breathe. Anyway, let's get down to business. Stay tuned at the end of the show for Chapter 2 of the Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly, but right now, our table is set at Derry and Tom's. We're already a couple of sheets to the wind, so let's take a dive into Book 1 of The Night of the Swords. Well, once again, we've got our table back in Derry and Tom's, our favourite table, as it happens. And I'm here with Loz. Hello, Loz. Welcome Hello. back. Hello. And today we are looking at The Night of the Swords, the first appearance of Coram from 1971. And which edition are you working from, Loz? 1973. 1973 Mayflower edition, I believe? Uh, yes, I am. Yeah, it's Mayflower the, Science Fantasy. Yeah, with a remarkable cover, which I think you just need to describe to us. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, it almost looks like a ferocious Buddha mm-hmm. uh, wearing a hat of faces, a couple of snakes on each shoulder, as yep. you do, eating loads of people. And then there's a little fella um, between some mountains, you know, 
in the middle of the book. Yeah, I think that's about the best. He's it's, got it's, a, it's a classic mare flower. And he's got a bum yeah. chin. Yeah. Which is good. quite a muscly fella. Yeah. But and, and he's got three eyes. Yeah. As you do. It's classic mare flower. I, I think I mentioned to uh, Tash on one of the last episodes that someone on Instagram commented on a photograph which included the cover, the mare flower cover of the jewel in the skull. And they said, pa, another cover where obviously the artist didn't read the book. It's rubbish. Mm. Like, what? Yeah. You can't you can't knock Mayflower covers. Yes, they're outrageously wacky. Yes, the, the artists had taken a heroic dose. Yeah. But you, you can't knock them. It was the 70s. Yeah. He absolutely. had carte blanche to paint some of the weirdest crap he could think of. Yeah. I've got the uh, 1992 Millennium Edition um, with Emo Corum on the cover. Yeah, I quite had that. I like it. It's a Japanese was, artist who's named. Yeah, I was going to say it's me. very manga, isn't it? Mm. A manga cover. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like it a lot. Yeah. Um, if I figure if I figure out who the artist is, I shall mention it in the intro. Oh, here we go. Illustration by Yoshitaka Amano. Yeah, nice nice one, Yoshitaka. We like it. We like we it do. a lot. So, as usual, we've got what seems to be the latest in an increasingly challenging series of beers. We have indeed <laughs> to take us through uh, our deep dive into the Jewel in the Skull, and this is from the Poyala. Oh yeah. No, it's odd. Yep. This is from the Poyala Cellar Series, and it is Honey Laku, a beer imperial porter brewed with heather, honey, licorice root, black currants, aged in Pedro Jimenez and bourbon barrels. Okay, let's get into this, see what happens. It's very similar to the last one, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's all right. It's... Uh, <laughs> It, it, it tastes like a strong porter with that undercurrent of brake fluid. A um, little bit too sweet for me. Slight, slightly nuggety quality. Gives yeah. you a bit of a film on the tongue. Yeah. Um, Couldn't drink a lot of it. Yeah, j- j- just for clarity, um, we're recording this after recording the Gerard Arthur Connolly RPG episode. So I think this is our third or fourth 10% porter that we're It tackling. is, and to be fair, it's been a challenge. Yeah, and to be fair, I'm feeling it. Yeah, it tastes like the fourth. On the it trot. does. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's yeah. It's like, did you ever uh, eat the chocolate version of Ready Brick when you were a kid? No. Did you not? No, I don't think so. Do you remember the flavours? Um, no, I only remember Ready Brick. I think there was a golden syrup one, wasn't there? Um, yeah. But we didn't really have Ready Brick in our house. We we had porridge oats. Yeah, obviously, uh, yeah, more old school than we were. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and for the most part, we, we were so old school that um, generally our breakfast tended to be boiled eggs, toast, and homebrew brown ale. <laughs> well, <laughs> Which yeah. probably explains the state I'm in 45 yeah. years later. And obviously, uh, you know, a stout porter and a couple of chops on a, <laughs> yeah. on a Saturday, <laughs> yeah. as, as we all did. Yeah, absolutely. It was whole, after all. Yeah. yeah. Dark days, yeah. but great days. <laughs> More beers. Yeah. Cheers. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah, it's very. Um, uh, <laughs> it's very thick, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit like drinking treacle. Yeah, I, I propose that this is the last time we do ten percent plus beer porters. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I I agree with that. I'm yeah. up there. That's a high five from me. Yeah, fortunately we have um, our Wormwood vodka and diet coke at hand to yeah. to what it's also. <laughs> Just, just to get rid of some of that, yeah, yeah. clartiness. Yeah. So, we are kicking off with uh, not the Julian Skull, of course, as you pointed out, the Knight of the Swords. 
And you've commented before a number of times that actually Coram is your favourite of the uh, of the Mocock Eternal Champion. Yeah, so, so basically United Swords was the first Mocock book I ever read. Got it from the library when I was rooting through the fantasy section, which mm-hmm. was probably, you know, a bit limited, a bit... Terry Brooks-ish, that mm. kind of stuff. Came across, <laughs> yeah, came across a very thin kind of book, really minimalist cover. And I thought, I'll give this a bash. And mm. I remember reading about it in White Dwarf, uh, yeah. the name. But yeah. I didn't didn't know who Michael Mocott was or anything. Yeah, Got the book and just was, yeah, again, man, this is just completely bombed out compared to every fantasy book I've ever read. Mm. So, so basically, the... If you think back to the Lord of the Rings stuff, very pastoral. It's it's very relatable in its landscape. Yep. Reading this was just like looking at a yes cover, double yeah. gatefold screen sleeve, going, "Holy shit!" Yeah. I don't get it, but I kind of like it. Yeah. The, the description of Ca- Castle Iran, which we'll get to, yeah, yeah. is is one of my favourites. It's like it's so yeah. psychedelic. Yeah. But um, and and although. Mocock is now into the early 70s with his writings. We've, we've kind of got away from um, the write a book in three days period. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's writing this the year before he writes Elric of Melnibonair. His writing style, he seems to have more time at it. Yeah. It's a little bit more mature, I think. Um, yeah. And that there are less kind of slapdash. Some of the language is ace as well. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. To, to be honest, so when, I, when I first read this book, didn't know what. Yeah, Viridian was didn't mm. know what um, sardonic men yeah. didn't know. The, the, I mean, sardonic is probably you know the, the word that stuck with me from Mocock yeah. completely. And that was when I first read this. It was like, okay, don't know what that means. I look it up. I like it, and it, it kind of taught me some, some new words really when yeah. I was a kid. And it was it was cool. Yeah, I, I really like as well the um, the introduction to this. So yeah, it's the, amazing. The three isn't page. It? Scene setting, world building introduction, which is absolutely fabulous. And as we were just saying a bit earlier before we started, that the first paragraph, if we could get John Hurt to read it, yeah, with some ace background music, yep, it would be, yeah. Well, unfortunately, the listeners will have to settle for me and some ripped off Tangerine Dream. But Let's go with that. Yeah, we'll go with it. If you can't get a the Harmers Grimsby, will do. Yeah. <laughs> So another thing we also have to cover, because we always do, is pronunciation. Yeah. So, of course, we, we, we do know that by this stage, Mocock has settled on the name Coram Halen Ersi. How do you feel about that pronunciation? I, I went for a Yalen Ersi myself. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have to, we'll just stick with Coram. Coram, yeah. yeah. Um, but, it, but we found that in the 1969 edition of the Eternal Champion, in the flashback scenes and the dream scenes, it was... Coram Bannon Fluran. It was. Yeah. Which, not not um, so good. Not so good. No. But that's all been sorted out in subsequent editions with yeah. the revisions. So we're with Coram Yalen Ersi. Similar. And he is of the race of the. There we go. I will go for Vadhag. Vadhag. Now, I was looking at this earlier on. If this was Manx language, it would be, it would be Varach with a Hag. Yeah, and that's, it's probably Celtic though, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and if it was um, one of the other ones I found, I looked up AGHN's Ow. So Vadow or Nadrow. Yeah, I don't like that. I like Vadak. Yeah, I do. I'm going to stick with it. Vadak yeah. struck Vadag, even if it's wrong. 
it's what I've always thought of it in my head, so I'm going to stick with yeah, it. Yeah, and it, come, it comes down to when you're reading a book, you, you've got that pronunciation in your yeah. head, and that's always what it's going to be in your head. Yeah. Unless, unless you hear Michael Mocott read it, yeah, it, it's whatever you want it to be, isn't it? Yeah. But, Drop yeah. us a line, Mike, let us know. Yeah. Um, I, I also tried to find a, a, a Cornish pronunciation guide, and I did find one. Which actually even had audio files, but it didn't have the AGH bit anywhere near it. So we'll just have to deal with that. And I'm just when we speak about it, I'm just going to talk. I'm going to speak these names in the way that I've always read them yeah, since I, being a teenager, right or wrong. Yeah. So we get this really, really lovely introduction, part of which I've read out as the introduction to the show, the prologue, and it basically talks about the Vadak and the Nadrak being um, very, very ancient creatures that have lived on the Earth, generally opposed to each other, separated and really don't spend any time together. But in the meantime, while they've been relaxing back into their kind of decadent, laid-back lifestyles, the upstart race of man has arrived. Similar to the uh, Meldabonian yeah. Young Kingdoms. There's a theme, isn't there? Because yeah. in The Eternal Champion, the Eldren, or the Hounds of Hell, or whatever yeah. the humanity call them, have been around the longest, and the human yeah. of the upstarts. In... The young kingdoms of Elric, the Melanobonians, have been around for the longest time and managed the upstart, and we have the same thing here. But interestingly, there's, there's a... And I remember connecting this in my head at the time, because I'd read Stormbring, the Ace Pocket Books edition of Stormbring was the first, possibly the first one I read. It was either that or Warlord of the Air from the late 60s. And there's a, a reference to the island of Pantang being a race of man called Mabden, who came from a different dimension. Oh, right, okay. And of course, in this, yeah. the Mabden have emerged into this world, and it says the Mabden live brief lives and bred prodigiously, and they essentially start to spread out, and their fear of the Vadak and Nadrak starts to diminish, and this this upstart breed of man begins, and it says upstart man was beginning to breed and spread like a pestilence across the world. This pestilence struck down the old races wherever it touched them, and it was not only death that man brought, but terror too. Willfully he made of the older world nothing but ruins and bones. Unwittingly he brought psychic and supernatural disruption of a magnitude which even the great old gods failed to comprehend. And the gods actually become afraid of man as well. But it's, it's, it's a really, really, really cool setting. Probably does have some similarities with that most uh, omnipresent of fantasy staples, Tolkien, in that the elves are the ancient and man is the upstart race. So it's a common theme across everything. Interesting that Mocock despite his distaste for Tolkien and the tropes of Lord of the Rings, seems to follow quite a lot of the same yeah, yeah, and the, yeah. basic traits. Yeah. But then again, that's actually rooted in English folklore, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. When I read this book, I was going through probably, uh, I'd probably describe as a nihilistic kind of uh, period of, of mm. my thinking. And looking back, because the, the way that, the Mabden or the the men are, are mm. kind of portrayed in this. You know, he, even in the second paragraph, the time when man, the slave of fear, was emerging. Yeah. It's always it. It's quite an interesting. I always see this book, rightly or wrongly, as almost Michael Moorcock's view of humanity through a lens, pretty much. Yeah. And the lens is obviously Corum. Yeah. But it's it's basically starts off with the worst. Aspect of humanity, and then just shows the kind of yeah the myriad of, of different people. You know, some people just want to get along, some people are just afraid, some people are 
uh, driven by hatred all this yeah. kind of stuff and that's how I, I always read this book was was that kind of looking at humanity through an alien yeah and and the vadag of pretty alien aren't they too when the f- they first start describing men mm-hmm. as a men humanity let's just use humanity instead yeah. of men it was um seeing them almost as subjects to study mm-hmm. really half beasts and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff and um yeah that's what that was what kicked in when i first read that read this book was like you know there's a lot of evil in the world and that's how i perceived it when i was a kid it was like there's a lot of evil going around yeah and and again, that that is a common theme with the Elder and Stroke, Melanie yeah, yeah, Stroke, yeah. Vadag, is in that at, at points they have a curled scientific detachment towards man and do view them as lesser beings. Yeah, and especially so in this book as well. There's yeah. loads of references when he when he's kind of almost studying humanity from afar. Yeah, and it's yeah, I mean we'll come come to it in a bit. Yeah, but. comes a cropper, doesn't he? <laughs> um, so there's um. There's also an indication here that the, the Vadak and the Nadrak have the ability to move between the dimensions they term the five planes. Yeah. So that ties into the ghost world in the Eternal Champion and the yeah. Sundered Worlds. Um, it, it ties into the various planes of existence, which at this stage in Mokok is talking more in terms of planes of existence, even though it's coined the multiverse term in, in the 60s in um, which the novel, which I can't remember. I think it might be the Sundered Worlds, isn't it? Or the Blood Red Game in the UK. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. There's a really great paragraph here where it, it talks about they had glimpsed and understood the nature of many planes other than the five through which the earth moved. Therefore, it seemed a dreadful injustice that these wise races should perish at the hands of creatures who were still little more than animals. It was as if vultures feasted on and squabbled over the paralysed body of the youthful poet who could only <laughs> stare at them with puzzled eyes as they slowly robbed him of an exquisite existence they would never appreciate, never knowing what they were taking. Brilliant. Yeah, it's great. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's great. If they valued what they stole, if they knew what they were destroying, says the old Vadag in the story, now the clouds have meaning, then I would be consoled. Uh, it's just it's just instantly uh, evocative and, and brilliant. And it just it, it goes back to like history, doesn't it? Where you've got like burning of books and yeah. you've got like you know, the destruction of of culture and you know, the, there's the story of um I think it was Trometheus. What some of the, some of his? I hope it's Trometheus. I've come across the right arse. but it was um, there was a destruction of some of the Greek cities mm. and all this kind of stuff by the Romans and barbarians and all this kind of stuff. And uh, they were saying that because of certain texts were destroyed, mm. that we are now two hundred years behind where we should be mm. from a mathematical and yeah. scientific point of view, and it's it's. Throughout history, isn't it? Is is that the fear of barbarism destroying culture? Yeah, and it's nineteen thirties burning books. You know, that's yeah, the most it's recent one, it is, and it's still happening now. Yeah, it's the cycle, isn't it? The destruction yeah. of knowledge that doesn't fit with your narrative. Yeah, and then that that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah, the the vulture and the young poet is quite a beautiful metaphor, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, it goes into a little bit more detail about the philosophy of the universe, and those who curse the workings of the universe curse that which is deaf. Those who strike out of those workings fight that which is inviolate. Those who shake their fists shake their fists at blind stars, which I think is also good. Yeah, yeah. And then we get a reference to such beings, sometimes of great wisdom, who cannot bear to believe in an insouciant universe. Prince Carlum Helen S.C. was one of these, perhaps the last of the Vadak race. He was sometimes known as the Prince in the Scarlet Robe, and this chronicle concerns him. 
And I absolutely adore that introduction because it's brilliant. Just recently, I've I've tried another um, fantasy book which has been repeatedly recommended to me, and I've had a go at it. I think three or four times, and maybe three times. And the, the first two or three pages, you get this little piece of world building and scene setting, but it mentions about seven city names. There's about four or five different characters introduced on that first page, most of whom never appear again. And it's I found it so wearing. It's like, right, this is a fantasy book, so now I've got to digest some stupid names, a load of wacky city names, yeah. none of which really will be of any relevance further down the line, probably. And, and, and this is what passes for world building. Whereas this, really, it mentions two races, what the world's like, what shitbird's man is. Yeah. And how how horrendous the world is turning because of their presence. Yeah. And it's nice and simple. The language is beautiful. It's fantastic. And it really sets the scene brilliantly. I can't remember how far into my Moorcock reading this one came. Because as I said, I started with Warlord of the Air and Elric and, and just used to go to second-hand bookshops and pick them all up as I went along. And I, I'm not sure that Coram came to me via Pops. I think it was second-hand bookshops that fed me all the Coram yeah. stuff. So I can't remember where along the line it was. But I have said um, on this show before that I really love the 60s ones for how throwaway and brilliantly breakneck pace they are and how well written they are, despite the fact that they were written on the bog yeah. and how kind of how they dash along at an incredible pace. But all of a sudden here, Moorcock is probably 31 by now. Yeah, and he's, yeah. he's, he's really starting to, to hone his art in, in terms of, of wordcraft. And I think he said um, at one point, I'd rather be a bad writer with big ideas yeah, yeah. Than, a, than a great writer with bad ideas. But actually, at 31, he's a great writer now. Yeah, yeah, it's a writer. He's a great writer. And this is really refreshing after doing book three of The Jew and the Skull. <laughs> so, chapter one proper begins at Castle Iran. And we mentioned before that, that there's some really beautiful language here about the castle as well. But this is where... Coram and the last 11 members of his family live in a castle that once took hundreds of people. Yeah. And they're lazing around, and all they're doing, they're creating music, they're creating poems, they're looking out the window. Painting. Painting. Yeah, yeah, around. Yeah, and um, it's, it, I want to be them. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I want to be them. Even with the, the 11 people who, who live in the castle, yeah. five of them are retainers. Yeah. So five of them are servants. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, nice one. You, you may be groovy. You may have just like, oh, I've just been knocking out a symphony for the last kind of 100 years. Yeah. But can you bring me a sandwich, Frank? Some bit peckish. Yeah. It's like, it's still got that hierarchy of. We're not that cool, you yeah. know. We're not a communist collective, are we? Yeah, you yeah. know. Well, it goes back to what we said on the RPG episode that yeah. all of Mocock's characters, our main protagonists, are of, of noble stock. Yeah, princes, dukes, yeah. and here emperors. we are to, closing towards the end of the world of the Vadak. Yeah, dilettante, and they've got their um, faithful returners. Yeah, yeah, who are of the same race. Yeah, yeah. just not. But as... there's, there's no. Egalitarian yeah. attitude. Oh, one of that interview is going, Sir Coram, um, yeah, talk us through the hierarchy yeah. in the castle. 
Well, we treat them well. Yeah. Yeah, they can do what they want. They can do their own symphonies if they want. Yeah. As this long is as Nigel. Like, he's yeah. been my he's been my uh, <laughs> he's been my for butler for the last nine hundred years. <laughs> and quite frankly, he's nailed it. Yeah, Nigel stands there and nods, but yeah. inside he's weeping. Yeah, going. Yeah, I, wish I the, haven't had a day off for yeah. nine hundred years. I wish the, I wish the Madonna could wipe us out. <laughs> I'm well pissed off. Yeah. And, uh, the description of Castle Iran is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? and there's just one like it loved exceedingly the moody sea that washed Iran's northern walls and the pleasant forest that crept close to her southern flank. Castle Iran was so ancient that she seemed to have fused entirely with the rock of the huge eminence that overlooked the sea. Outside, it was a splendour of time-worn turrets and salt-smoothed stones. Within, it had moving walls which changed shape in tune with the elements and changed colour when the wind changed course. And there were rooms full of arrangements of crystals and fountains playing exquisitely complicated figures composed by members of the family, some living, some dead. And there were galleries filled with paintings brushed on marble and glass by Prince Klonsky's artist ancestors. And there were libraries filled with manuscripts written by members of both the Vadag and the Nadrag races. And elsewhere in Castle Iran were rooms of statues, and there were aviaries and menageries, observatories, laboratories, nurseries, gardens, chambers of meditation, surgeries, gymnasia, collections of martial paraphernalia, kitchens, planetaria, museums, conjuratoria, as well as rooms set aside for less specific purposes or rooms forming the apartments of those who lived in the castle. That's pretty cool. Fuck yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm that's, there. that's very cool. Especially yeah. the fact it's got gymnasia. Yeah, exactly. Not, not just got one gym. No, no. It's got multiple Gym-gymnasia. gyms. Gymnasia. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. Got one each. Mm. Apart from for Frank, the retainer. Yeah. He's, he's not got one. Yeah. Frank and Nigel, they, <laughs> yeah, they've just got to lift books. Yeah. Nigel, pass me uh, my reading spectacles. Yeah. So living there, there's Prince Klonsky, who's ancient. His yeah. wife, Kola Talana, who was in your, who was. Appears to be much younger. Yeah. And there's Elastra. Uh, Elastru. But you know what? I'm not reading these. No, it's a lot of time. Tongue all over the place. Prince Rannan. Hmm. But they're all they're all Vadak. They're all chilling out. They're all, and you would get the Vadak features. Yeah, described, which is which is interesting. Isn't which it? is basically the same as the Eldrin. But the eyes. Narrow, long skulls, ears that were almost without lobes, and tapered flat alongside the head. Fine hair that a breeze would make rise like flimsy clouds about their faces. Large almond eyes that had yellow centres and purple surrounds. Wide, full-lipped mouths and skin that was a strange gold-flecked rose pink. Their bodies were slim and tall and well-proportioned. The move of allegedly grace that made the human gait seem like the shambling of a crippled ape. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty swish. But, so, but yellow and purple eyes. I remember yeah. when I read that, I was like, it took me ages to kind of, like, I was... Getting my imagination working, going, what the hell does that look like? Mm. Yeah, and then later on, they change when they're a bit crossed, don't they? Ah, I've forgotten that. Mm. So we also found that Prince Klonsky, head of the household, is uh, is a bit old now. You can see his muscles and his veins through his. Well, skin. that's a brilliant thing. Isn't it? So this this kind of description of Klonsky, yeah. Prince Consley's skin was almost milk white and so thin that all of the veins and muscles were clearly displayed beneath. He had lived for over a thousand years and only recently his age began to enfeeble him. And then the the next bit is quite interesting. It goes back to kind of the suicide booths almost, doesn't it? Yeah. Of chambers. Yeah, yeah. When his weakness became unbearable, when his eyes began to dim, he would end his life in the manner of the Vadhag. 
by going to the chamber of vapours and laying himself on the silk quilts and cushions and inhaling the various sweet-smelling gases until he died. Yeah. It's all right, isn't it? It's like a more pleasant version than the end of, of the end of uh, Silent Green, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> slightly better. Yes, yeah, slightly better in that he's not going to get eaten. No. Um, yeah. It doesn't mention it, anyway. It's, so you've got this uh, super... I don't know if decadence is the right word, but you've got this ancient civilization where they just lay around creating poetry to the point where they're just like, a thousand years. But I've, it's had quite, a, I've had a good innings. I've had them all right, haven't I? I've yeah. done my symphonies. I'll but I think the Chamber of Vapors. Yeah, the, but all, all of that kind of... Because it's quite... It's almost futuristic, isn't it, in a way? Yeah. Because you read it going, yeah, they're, they're living in, in this massive cave, pretty much, because it's, yeah, worn to look like the surrounding area. Yeah. But they've got planetaria and surgeries and all kinds of craziness. Yeah. Have you ever seen Zardoz? Sadly, I have, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I love Zardoz. I'm, I'm an unashamed Zardoz fan. But the human enclave that yeah. Sean Connery ends up at, if they had a budget, yeah, yeah. it would have been this. It would, yeah. And I, and I do wonder um, whether John Barman had actually read this because the human enclave that he ends up going to... Really, is this it is, they're immortal? Yeah. When the difference is when they get to old age, they end up getting put in a bizarre old people's home with John Alderton. Which, yeah, slightly <laughs> Which different. Is slightly yeah. different, but it's, it's it's so similar. It's it's fantastic. So the super long lived, and um, Prince Klonsky decides that he wants Coram to do him do him a solid. Yeah. Alright, so do us a solid. Do us a solid. Let's do us a solid before he goes to the Chamber of Vapors, yeah. and he wants Coram to head out into the world. To see that um, it's Prince Opash, isn't it? At Castle Sarn, yes. I believe. He, yeah. he wants to go and make contact with uh, distant members of his family who he hasn't seen for centuries, just to you know see what's going on. See what's going on. Yeah. Check out the line. Come of back the land. to him before he goes and have a bit of a lie down. Hmm. So already we've got Coram. He's pretty much got a quest, which, yeah. is, which is kind of cool because usually you've got to go through quite a bit before you get to quest mode. But we're instantly kicking off in quest mode. So Coram sets out from Castle Iran to begin his quest. But he's, he's quite naive, isn't he, Coram? He's very much a cloistered prince in a magic house going, oh, everything's great. Oh, I'll just go and visit my, my family. Hello, brilliant, yeah. it'll oh, be great. Oh, oh God, well, I'll, I'll just put aside all my weird tubes that I've been creating well, that was the thing, week-long compositions with. Because, yeah, quest mode's kicked in, but, but basically goes... Dad, can I just? Uh, I've got a symphony I want to finish. So he probably spends another three months doing, <laughs> yeah, doing like the uh, the middle eight, yeah. going, oh, I'm not happy with it. I like it, but mm. I think it needs more weird tubely. It, it's the equivalent of Mike Oldfield, isn't yeah. it? I think. You were about to say tubely bells. Oh, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but tried not to, but it came yeah. out. So he, he he heads on out into some. Beautiful forests, and, and, and again, I mean, I'm but not going to read a lot of I this think, out. I think we just need to point out that he goes out to visit his family, yeah. but make sure he's got two spears, a bow, an axe, and a sword, uh, and some armour. Yeah. Just in case. So he just got prepped, but maybe that's kind of... Um, that's the way they roll. That's the way they roll due to all those years of conflict with the Nadrag. So he has a... We get a lovely little travelogue. He heads out through the forests, which he hasn't seen for a long, long time. And yeah, of course, we get a, a nice little um, description of his get-up, what he's taken with him, 
And he's, he's got his conical silver helm, which has his full name carved in three characters above the short peak. Which I think is a bit, a bit flash, too much, it? don't you? A bit flash. Just in case. Coram, Hale and Ursi, meaning Coram, the prince in the scarlet robe. It was the custom of the Vadak to choose a robe of distinctive colour and identify themselves by means of it. It's a good job there's not many of them left. Yeah, exactly. Because you'd run out of colours, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, you would. Prince of the brown robe and that kind of stuff. You'd ah, oh, <laughs> so yeah. it's just like Mr. Yeah, if you, were, if you were late to the party, yeah, choose yeah. your colour. Yeah, I've, I've got all like a dusty beige colour. Yeah. yeah. So he's, he's out there and he's, he's got a double Bernie. Made up of a tiny, million tiny links. And I think the other, the other Mocock trope is uh, he's quite into Samite, isn't he? So, yes. So he's got a, a blue Samite kind of uh, shirt and some breeks. Yeah. Which were uh, of soft brush leather. Yeah. So he, he piles on through the forest. He's actually quite having, having a good time. He is. Just chilling he's enjoying out. It, yeah. Wandering the forest. He's got a red horse as well. Oh, nice. So soon Coram leaves the forest and has reached the great plain called Brogphythus. Yes. Where once the Vadag and the Nadrag had met in bloody mystical battle. So he's, he's doing a tour of battlefields. He's he's really, you know, doing the whole well, he's, um, he's almost tourist doing, thing. He's doing the uh, year out, gap year travelling piece, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. And towards the middle of the day, he finds himself at the centre of Brogfythus and he comes to the spot that marked the boundaries of the territories as he roamed as a boy. Here was the weed-grown wreckage of the vast sky city that, during the month-long battle of his ancestors, had careered from one plane to another rupturing the fine fabric that divided the different dimensions of the earth until, crashing at last upon the gathered ranks of Vadag and Nadrag, it had destroyed them. It's all very sci-fi, that, isn't it? It is, yeah. And that's yeah. the thing. Isn't it? You've got a dude with a pointy hat on a red horse yeah. with a destroyed sky city. And that in itself is a beautiful, amazing image for yeah. a fantasy. Yeah, you want that painted, or you want that in a film. Yeah. It would be amazing as a, you know, don't make a Elric. TV show, make a Coram on it, be ace. Mm. Yeah, and actually, if they did make an Elric TV show, we are in, we are at that point now where it would look tired and yeah. out of date because it's been ripped off so much. But this stuff is yeah, still yeah. pretty fresh and groovy. Like, yeah, you never see yeah TV shows with red horses and... Uh, and crashed sky cities. No. Yeah. So it, it travels on for another three days. It travels on for another three days, and there's, there's a real nice mention... He says, once or twice he'd seen strangely shaped rocks where Vadag castles had stood, but they had been no more than rocks. It occurred to him that these rocks were the transmogrified remains of Vadag dwellings, but his intellect rejected such an impossibility. Such imaginings were the stuff of poetry, not of reason. Have you ever been to the south of France and the foothills of the Pyrenees? I have, not for a while, mm, but yeah. We, we were there a few years ago, and of course you've got all those old Cathar castles. Yeah. And... That description is exactly like being in the foothills of the Pyrenees where you see things that you think, no, that's just a rock, that's just a rock. And then at a certain angle, you realise it's a crafted archway or an old window. And you realize, holy shit, that, that actually is the remains of some old structure or dwelling. Yeah. And when you see stuff like um, Quiribus and Montsegur and how beautifully crafted the stonework was that made them seem like they actually grew from the mountainside. When they break down over the subsequent hundreds and hundreds of years, it really is like a a blend of of nature and mankind. But depending on which direction you're looking from and what the light is like at the specific time, you change your mind every time as to whether it was real or imaginary. Yeah, man-made or or natural. Yeah, but... Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's interesting, isn't it? It's brilliant. So anyway, 
in another three days, it'll be at Castle Krakar, where his aunt, the Princess Lorim, lived. So he has a kid. Oh, will he? Indeed. So, so the next chapter is called the Mabden Herd, which kind of sets things up. The fact that it's even called the Mabden Herd. Yeah, yeah. It that's the, the whole thing, isn't it? Mm. And then it's the first time he comes across the Mabden mm-hmm. as a as a a whole. And and the way the the way it's described is is the way he's looking at almost like a scientist would look at yeah. look at an animal. Yeah, he's observing them, isn't he? Yeah. And he and not understanding it, it's completely alien to him. Like yeah, yeah. There's behave- no fear. Yeah, he's yeah, very it's detached. Just, yeah, it's just the behaviour is just like, well, oh, that's a bit bit interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It says uh, close to their came and still Coram observed them with intense curiosity as they would study any unusual beast he had not previously yeah. seen. And then we've got the these are peculiar brutes in truth. Mused yeah. Coram half aloud. Yeah, <laughs> it's like hello. Yeah. It's like that thing. <laughs> Yeah, when you when you get a film where you, you get like the scientist character going, oh, this is very interesting, and then they get eaten by a dinosaur or something. Yeah, and he uh, he, he observes these chariots of timber and beaten bronze yeah. drawn by shaggy horses, and behind the chariots came wagons, some open with awnings, some with awnings. Perhaps he carried females. Coram thought, for there were no females to be seen elsewhere. And then he and then he thinks, well, they're, they've got thick, dirty beards, yeah. long tashes. Matted hair, um, bit bit greasy, aren't they? I yeah, noticed. they yell at each other and pass wineskins around. And he says, astonished, Coram recognised the language as the common tongue of the Vadag and the Nadrag, though much corrupted and harshened. So the Mabden had learned a sophisticated form of speech. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, it's, these these weird people. Yeah, and then you know he, he um, picks picks out a couple of words and he says like Sheffenhow, which is like. Uh, a translation of a Vadag word, isn't it? For yeah. fiend, and then they call themselves the Denled High Sea, don't they? Which is again, uh, he says it's a, a bastardization of, of the word murderers. So the, these Mabden call themselves murderers. That's yeah. their kind of the name for themselves. Yeah. Which kind of sets you up, don't it? Thinking there might be wrong ones. And he, he realizes that before long, the wagons don't contain females, but, but booty. And uh, these stinking, drunk men who are almost falling out of the chariots yeah. are dressed in all manner of clothing that includes clothes of stolen samite and linen. But for the most part, they're just wearing dirty, <laughs> dirty, <laughs> dirty animal greasy, skins. Yeah, greasy yeah. outfits. Yeah, they look like a right bunch of wrong-uns. Yeah, so it's the equivalent of going, you're in town, see a few wrong-uns beating each other. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Run away. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's struggling at this point to, to realise how, or, or even to recognise how such dirty bastards could possibly have won yeah. a fight with, uh, or done battle with Vadag Warriors and won. And he noticed also that they've got some um, some prisoners of their own species of the dragon along on ropes. And he's, he's horrified that they would treat their own species. And that's where he says, yeah, these are peculiar brutes in truth. Yeah. But but still not have that emotional connection of these people seem to be tortured. Yeah, no, yeah, it doesn't seem great. Yeah. Um, then you've got the bane of beauty, the doom of truth, and that's when uh, he arrives at Castle San, isn't it? Yeah, Valley Krakar, and uh, and the the castle of Princess Lorim. Yeah. Well, it's all knackered, isn't it? Yeah, it's a yeah. smouldering ruin. He realizes that this is probably where the Mabden have been and where they've, they've bagged all of their booty. Fire had brought Castle Krakow down. Fire had eaten her folk, for now Coram, as he rode his snorting beast, 
<laughs> sorry, snorting horse around the ruins made out blackened skeletons, and beyond the ruins were signs of battle. A broken Mabden chariot, some Mabden corpses, an old Vadag woman chopped into several pieces. Mm. And then, then he has that conversation with the the Nadrag, doesn't he? Who, and then that's the world building there, isn't it? He has that conversation. The conversation is basically, yeah, you know, fuck all. You've been sat in your castle, poncing around while mm. the Mabden have taken over, and he's he's basically talking about you're actually living in uh, a place that's got a king, a Mabden king, mm-hmm. and you just. Yeah, you, you're clueless. Mm, yeah. You see a bit of the Nadrag, which I never really could could kind of visualise massively mm. as a as a race. So I remember they were described as they had like hair down to the foreheads, didn't they? Yeah, they have like low brows and yeah. um, kind of almost uh, a little bit ape like in in the description. Yeah. yeah, I could never quite really get my head around what they were supposed to be, but I suppose they're they're only really a, a cipher anyway. They? They, they don't really play. Any great role in things. I don't think the, the, there's any of them until uh, the last book, is yeah. it? King of Swords. So anyway, he uh, he finds the Mabden camp, and and by this point, he's he's still completely and utterly uh, detached from everything, and and super naive. So he actually walks into the camp and calls him out. Well, that's that's because uh, originally, so when he meets the Nadrag, they've been used to like kind of. Um, Hounds, aren't they, to yeah. to hunt down the Vadag? And he finds out that he goes, "Oh yeah, there was one more castle left, and it was obviously his castle." Yeah. So that's when Coram goes, "Holy shit! Yeah, that's my castle." And that's when he pals back, isn't it? And again, as you said, he goes back and sees Castle Eron completely bugger shit face because yeah. they've taken over it. And that's when he does his massive, "You, you're the knobheads," and he yeah. kills a few people quite brutally, doesn't it? Yeah. And and each kind of it's called a lesson learned, isn't it? That chapter, and each time he does something, it's like Andy learned this, isn't he? Yeah, and he he actually goes on some other castles and finds them all in exactly the same yeah, yeah. situation. Um, comes across more Mabden with faces pocked with disease, thick with grease and filth. Yeah, their bodies strung with barbaric ornament, and he wonders at their power of destruction. And it still adds a belief that insensitive beasts as these who appear to have no second sight at all could bring ruin to the great castles of the Vadak. So he's still struggling to accept what he's yeah. seeing with his own eyes. And the the Nadrag conversation is, um, Slay me, I pray, Vadag, do not let me linger. I don't know how to kill, Corrin replied. Then you must learn. <laughs> and that's yeah. the kind of thing. And then the next bit is the lesson learned, isn't it? So so he, go, he goes, to, goes back to the castle. Obviously, it's been brutalised by the Denled High Sea. It's almost in in little sentences, isn't it? So yeah. the first the first one is they were lounging in their chariots, pouring sweet vadag wine down their faces and into their gullets. The sounds of the sea and the blaze hid the sound of Coram's approach, until his spear pierced the face of a denled icy warrior, and the man shrieked. Coram learned how to kill, and then the next bit is. But Coram held the spear now, and it struck through the man's bronze breastplate and into his heart. He learned now to be cruel. Yeah, unfortunately, in his in his uh, learning how to kill, he he comes across a bit uh, one particularly unpleasant Mabden, who uh, will be his uh, his nemesis in Glandith Acre. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Glandith, Glandith, who is totally if we pull out Lord Shark's ostentatious couch, which yeah. on this occasion is some old bits of two before with bent and rusty nails in it. Yeah. 
but with with a nice kind of faded velvet over the top of it. Yeah, just just so it looks all right. Yeah, but still hurts. Yeah, but it's yeah, yeah. it's painful. Um, it's it's all it's nineteen seventies Oliver Reed. You think fantasy casting Glenifer Cray? It's nineteen seventies Oliver Reed with a beard. Potentially, yeah. I think he might be a bit too handsome though, because Glenifer Cray was quite a poxed. Oh, well, give him some prosthetics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who else then? Who would you cast as Glenda Thackeray? Who, the young know, Blade Runner, who was also in Southern Comfort. Brian James. Yes. Brian James, if he were alive, would yes. have made a towering Glenda Thackeray. <laughs> yeah. He would. Yeah. Yeah. I would possibly go for him. Yeah. He'd be possibly a bit tall. Yeah, that would work, actually. Yeah, he, he would be good. Yeah. He, I'm, I'm sure there were lots of 70s character actors with interesting yeah, yeah. faces yeah, yeah, who yeah. could have done this. But yeah, I think Brian James would have, would have been a good shout. Yeah. So anyway, Glendithe Cray and Coram come, uh, come face to face and they have a bit of a scrap. Says he was breathing harshly now and staggered. Other chariots raced by on both sides and a sword struck his helmet. Dazed, he fell to one knee. A spear at his shoulder and he fell in the chained mud. Then Coram learned cunning. Instead of attempting to rise, he lay where he had fallen until all the chariots had passed. Before he could begin to turn, he pulled himself to his feet. His shoulder was bruised and the spear had not pierced it. He stumbled through the darkness, seeking to escape the barbarians. Then his feet struck something soft and he glanced down and saw the body of his mother and he saw what had been done to her before she died. And a great moan escaped him and tears blinded him and he took a firm grip on the axe in his left hand and painfully drew his sword screaming, Glandith Acrae! Yeah. And Coram had learned the lust for revenge. This is so well written. And his eyes were his eyes turned from um, yellow and purple to black and, and gold as yeah. well, which is quite cool. Yeah. So it, and it makes him very alien as well. Sadly, he, he fights over the body of his mother, and he kills more people and splits more skulls, and he comes face to face with Glandith Acrae, but it doesn't go entirely well for him. And there is that lovely bit where it says Coram's black and gold eyes, because he's now now he's enraged. His entire demeanour and appearance has altered. Unfortunately, don't go well, does it? No, it don't go well. And and Coram, he's he's all over him, but he's spent the last of his strength. It's too weak from from all the fighting, and frankly, probably not being used to it. And then they knock his helmet off and knock him out. This this is the knocking out piece, right? So you go back to the RPG stuff, knocking somebody out the yeah. back of the head. Yeah. It it happens twice in in the first half of of this book, and yeah. both times it's quite you know. Let's just finish this chapter. Well, you know what? They've got to knock him out so he can wake up and yeah. be maimed. Yeah, yeah, rather brutally. And I do remember reading this and thinking, oh, He's, this this guy's the hero. This is really fucking harrowing. Uh, honestly, you know, not so, harrowing enough that he's just found his mother yeah, in that terrible state. Yeah, and and basically his his whole family wiped out. Yeah, yeah. that that whole thing for me when I was first reading it was going, holy shit! What yeah. what is this writer on about? Yeah. So so the hero, it's interesting as well because still when he realizes it's not going to go well for him, he goes, why? Why are you doing it? Because yeah. he still doesn't understand why. Yeah, I get it. And he got Glandith, which is yeah, it, it can be many kind of people throughout history. Yeah, when he's basically going right. So why are you doing it? You should know. We hate your sorcery. We love your superior airs. We desire your lands and those goods of yours, which are are of use to us. So we kill you. And then Coram's still going. You say, hey, we have no sorcery and all this kind of stuff. And he's saying, we've seen your castles and your evil contraptions, what they contain. 
and and basically it's that thing of brutalism versus sophistication again isn't yeah. it right we're, we're destroying this because we don't understand it yeah and it it still happens now doesn't it you've got people blowing up statues because they they don't understand it I'm, yeah. I'm not about i wasn't about the recent stuff i was more you know when you have the Taliban blowing up stuff. Yeah, got, up and yeah. Mesopotamian yeah, yeah. historical. Yeah, I wasn't talking about the yeah. Confederate stuff. Yeah. yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Even at the point where they bring up the brazier and they pretty much got him nailed to a board. Yeah, and he says a great brazier was brought forward. It was full of red hot charcoal, and from it poked irons of various sorts. These were instruments especially designed for torture. Thought Coram, what sort of race could conceive such things and call itself sane? Yeah. yeah. So he's, then, he's still struggling to to get his head around it, and and then you know there's a, there's a couple of so, so in Reservoir Dogs yeah. where Mister Bond goes, torture you yeah that that's kind of that's a cool idea, I don't care what you got to say blah 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 really chilling and this this one here where he's going um, ah you see you do not know that the sort of Vadag died swiftly or relatively so because we had so many to find and so many to kill but you were the last. We can take our time with you. We think, in fact, we will give you a chance to live if you can survive with your eyes gone, your tongue put out, your hands and feet removed and your genitals take away, and then we'll let you so survive. And I, I remember reading that as a kid going, what a bastard. Yeah, I, I distinctly remember this. Just going, holy I, I, shit. I remember reading this at the time as, as much as anything I ever read by Moorcock and the impact it had on me. Yeah. Especially when you get things like, if Karma had eaten anything in the last few days, he would have vomited yeah. then. As it was, bile came into his mouth and his stomach trembled and ached. There were no further preliminaries. It's like, oh, fucking hell. But before, you know, after after that speech, he then goes, he signaled to his men, bring the tools, let's begin. I was like, no. Yeah. What? And and, and then it it happens. Yeah. It happens. They put out his eye. He he tries to get his second sight so he he can shift plane to try and escape it. But the pain just brings him back and it says... Coram gave one last huge tug and his wrist came free. He put up the hand to touch the blind eye but still felt nothing. He looked at the hand. There was no hand, just a wrist, just a stump. And he screamed again and the pain dragged him back yeah. to, to the experience of the torture. It's really horrifying. Yeah, it's hideous, isn't it? Yeah. And that's you. that's your hero of the book. Yeah. And, yeah, I'd not read anything like it before and I was like, holy shit, this yeah. guy is not pulling any punches, is he? Yeah. This pub poor dude just yeah horrible yeah it's, it's, it's really unpleasant and, and Glandith is, is still laughing having a great time yeah. fortunately he manages to shift himself slightly into another plane only essentially making himself invisible but it's it's enough for the thick Mabden to think he's got away and run to the forest yeah so he's, he's thoroughly maimed now he's had his eye put out he's had his hand chopped off he's in a bit of a state but he does manage to, uh, to to put off the rest of the torture and fortunately retains his genitals. Which is good. Yeah, because yeah. he'll, he'll need him in a few chapters. He might do. Yeah. 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 And um... Fortunately, we have a nice piece of Moorcock. Character bumps into a companion who helps him out. Yeah, yeah. Good old brown man of law. Yeah. I love the brown man of law. Good, good fella. And in a way, unlucky brown man of law. Brown man of law. Um, but, you know, for the time being... We're digging it. Yeah. And this was another one of the things that shocked me at the time, was uh, what goes down with the Brown Man of La. Yeah, I forgot about that. So yeah. you just you mentioned it, yeah. Yeah. So the Brown Man of La picks up Coram and carries him away whilst he, he continually faints. 
and gets him away from the Mabden camp. But the brown man, Mr. Sir... Ooh, here we go. How do you fancy this one? I didn't even go there. I Yeah, it was... So, 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 yeah, so it's, it's it's very it's similar in a way to his, his encounter with uh, Oladan. Um, he he has some Tucker. This uh, the brown man of La. Was is... the, other, the other guy in the background then? The twelve foot, six foot wide dude. Oh right, is that not the brown man of La? No, that's the other guy, who ends up to be. You find out in the second book who it is. Then they've both been there for like hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, hiding. So, so he's he's a, he's a bit of a fucking wretched mess. Yeah, and uh, but the brown man of La is helping him out, gives him something to eat, yeah, allows him to have a kip, and Karam stays with him for five days in the valley of the brown man of La. And then there's a bit of a to do, isn't there, where Karam's going, I'm going to go and seek my vengeance in the nude with yeah. me one eye and one hand, yeah. and uh, the brown man's going, Nah, you're all right, and he takes him to um, another Mabden. Oh yeah, the cars were. Moidle's yeah. Mount. Moidle's Mount, yeah. Mm. St. Michael's Mount. I uh, went there last year for the first time. Really? Yeah, very nice. Uh, St. Yeah. Michael's Mount, yeah. I've been to both. I've been to Mont Saint-Michel as well. Mont Saint-Michel is something else. St. Michael's Mount is nice, but Mont Saint-Michel is massive by comparison. Yeah. Mont Saint-Michel is, is like, um, you've got the causeway across to it and then you've got the wall and then you have a winding street that goes all the way up yeah. and there's shops and restaurants and various other things and you get to the top and it's, uh, it's an old um, church. Yeah, and it's just it's absolutely stunning it's a beautiful place to stay and there are hotels on there and we've always intended to get a hotel there and stay on there for a couple of nights yeah, so once cool, all the tourists have gone yeah. you, you kind of got the run of the place and the restaurants and bars but the last time we, we've been a few times whenever we're in Brittany or in that neck of the woods we always go just because it's so spectacular and the last time we were there we walked across the causeway and we'd, just, we'd literally just got there and I think one of us nipped to the bog or whatever and we, we came out and there was a whole procession of monks had come across the causeway, really? looking like they were in medieval, just just looking yeah. like they could just come from the monastery, so it looked medieval. One at the front with a massive, carrying a massive crucifix, swinging censers with incense, and they just, you know, they basically marched a trail about two hundred of them up, up the the winding street up to the church at the top. It was absolutely Amazing. phenomenal, it was yeah. brilliant. Such a like one of those um, goosebump type moments. Now I'm not religious, no. but it was it was like something out of the name of the rose. Yeah, yeah, if it wasn't for all the people in shorts with cameras and all that business, yeah. but the actual, it was brilliant. It yeah. was brilliant. All that stuff is still live and happening and real there. Yeah, I remember when when I went to um, Cologne Cathedral, which is like it's, it looks like the one out of Batman. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And we camped there, and um, there was a procession of like a choir basically yeah. just singing choir songs all the way to the church. It yeah. was just amazing. Yeah. and I'm yeah. The antithesis of religious, but it, even that, it's like, ah, oh, it's beautiful. It's like amazing. So he goes to Moidal's Mount, where he gets dropped off the causeway, doesn't he? Yeah. And then the brown man of Leia bogs off, and he's in the middle of the causeway, isn't it? and he, and there's some people on horses coming towards him. Yeah. And again, that would be a very ace scene in a, a yeah, TV would. show. Yeah. So he, at this point, he's got to either. And go back or, or try and get to Moidle's to Mount. Um, but as it happens, he gets swept out to sea anyway. Yeah. Um, and he starts to drown. But fortunately, he uh, he gets rescued 
by that's right, Elathian Mabden, who appeared to have little in common with the Mabden warriors of Glandithacre. So this lot obviously are attractive yeah, yeah. And, and cultured. Yeah, yeah, they're not greasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These so soap. He gets rescued and taken up there, where he meets. And he says he can hardly believe this is mapped in architecture because it's pretty swish. Yeah, he's impressed, isn't he? Mm. So, so there are obviously other types of Mabden who who are these like uh, depraved beasts who must have been around a little bit longer. And so there's a few of them. Pony tribes, don't they? That's right. Yeah, that they tell him that they're evidently not Mab- what they call Mabden of the East. Yeah, and he gets introduced to who Natasha would describe as. Woman one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, woman one. Relina. So, Relina. woman one. Relina, the Margravine. Again, a noble. Yeah, and, uh, you know, because he's a prince and she's the woman one, they yeah. fall in love, naturally. Of course they do. Because that's just how it works. Yeah. And uh, and they spend some hot time together. They do. Mm. Now, her husband, the Margrave, Earl Moidle of Alamglil, Killed in a shipwreck, so she's a bit she's a bit fed up. She's a widow, which she is. you know. F- come on, you're a prince. Despite the fact you've got only got one eye and your hand's been locked off, you're pretty handsome. She's yeah. a widow. Yeah, exactly. He's got all the moves by being a bit of a moody twat. Yeah, talking about um, vengeance a lot. Yeah, it's very attractive, isn't it? To, yeah, to people. And you know, in the end, it, it goes all right for him. He gets obsessed with the Mag and Mag. Oh, oh the Doom that... of Mag and Mag. Jack O'Neilly. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Um, I actually got to a point with Gerard Arthur Connolly and Jack O'Neilly where I started to forget what what I'd met up <laughs> and what I'd stolen. <laughs> there was a time where I thought, no, Jack O'Neilly was mine, wasn't it? But no, it wasn't. They hang out for a bit. Yeah, he's pretty much moping the entire time, being filled with rage, and she's she's saying, oh, you know what, you... you you're not that ugly now. I've seen yeah. worse. Yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, but I'm going to get Glenith the Crenches. Oh, just, you know, chill out. Yeah, he, uh, he gets in the sack with the Margravine. She's happy with a, a, a bit of carum, despite his one eye and one hand. Mm-hmm. She's obviously uh, getting over her, uh, her bereavement. He's reading lots and lots of books in the library to try and figure out what he can do about his hand and eye so he can take his so revenge on Glenith the Crenches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he, he reads shitloads of books and then he rushes back to the library to consult the book she'd mentioned. He finds it and discovers that the name of the, na- the island that he needs to go to is Fian Fan Not a pleasant name. As far as Carlman could make out, it meant home of the gorged god. What could that mean? He expected the text for an answer, but found none. So he buggers about copying out charts and reference points given by the captain of the ship that had visit- visited Moidle's Mount 30 years before. And it was very late when he saw his bed and found Relina there. And she'd wept herself to sleep. He knew that it was his turn to offer her comfort. But he had no time. What a guy. What a geezer. He undressed, eased himself into bed between the silks and the furs, trying not to disturb her. But she wakes up and they get on it anyway. Yeah. Be rude not to. It's in that position. Silks and the furs, isn't it? Yeah, he'd be rude not to. Yeah, winter's reached his fiercest by this point. And the Mabden turned back up. And the youth who rescued him figures out that it's the pony tribes. Yep, Belden. And poor old brown man of La, well, he's come a cropper for helping out Coram. So Coram decides, well, you know what? We need to figure something out. So I'll go back and get back into the books again. Yeah. So off he, off he, off he pops, gets back to his books and his manuscripts where Relina is doing the same thing and they come up with a battle plan. And they attempt to parley, of course, but that doesn't go out particularly well. Parley's uh, never do. No. And Coram exchanges a you fuck off, no, you fuck off. Yeah. With Glandith Acre, 
And then they get down to it and they realise that it's fight on. And unfortunately at this point, the brown man of La is flung over the back of his horses to fall upon the causeway. Poor lad. So chapter 11, the summoning. So at this point... I think the quick version is she uh, she finds a, a sorceress manuscript to uh, summon a ship from beneath the waves, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah, just to add insult to injury, Glandeth wearing Coram's hand round his neck on a yeah, that, seems, that well. seems to be just like a touch too far, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a bit rude. Won't wear his eye as well, does he? No. It's like a brooch. So, Coram and Glandith end up going for mano a mano combat. Yeah. And Coram wearing some kind of crustacean-based armour. He's wearing a crab breastplate of some yeah. description. Yeah. 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 Um, the armour was unfamiliar, consisting of a breastplate, backplate, greaves and a kilt, all made from the pearly blue shells of a sea creature called the Anufek, which had once <laughs> inhabited the waters of the West. The shell was stronger than the toughest iron and lighter than any burnie. A great spined helmet with a jutting peak had, like the helmets of the other warriors of Marzil's castle, been manufactured from the shell of the giant Murex. Servants helped Coram don his gear and they gave him a huge iron broadsword that was so well balanced he could hold it with his one good hand. His shield, which he had them strapped to his handless arm, was the shell of a massive crab, which had once lived, the servants told him, in a place far beyond even Luanesh, and known as the land of the distant sea. This armour had belonged to the dead Margrave, who had inherited it from his ancestors, who had earned it long before it had been considered necessary to establish a Margrave at all. So not only is he nobbing Merlina, he's wearing her husband's armour as well. Dead man's crab armour. Dead man's crab armour. Which seems a bit disrespectful, isn't it? It does a bit. Yeah. But the head down, he goes for the old mano a mano combat with Glandith Acrae. But of course, Glandith being a, a rough sort and uh, and a bit of a bad lad, he's, he's not he game cheats, for it. He cheats, doesn't he? He does. He cheats real badly, and they get into a bit of a scrap. They have a little bit of back and forth, and then Glandith attempts to have archers shoot him down. What a rotter. And, you know, he, he didn't see that coming. No. What a buffoon. No. He should have read page four of the treatise to defend the castle. Yeah. So he defends his way backwards down the causeway to get back to the castle. The water starts to come back in again, and the Belden and the archers are showering arrows down onto the, the pony tribesmen causing confusion on the causeway. And Coram escapes back into the castle. He says, I must have a new hand and a new eye. The sea serves him for that point. Yeah. But the Denladesi have regrouped on the shore. The dead men and their ponies, as well as the corpse of the brown man of Lara, had washed away by, had been washed away by the sea. A few corpses bobbed among the rocks below the castle. Here and there were the bodies of their own warriors and barbarians who had managed to sneak into the castle through poorly defended windows and balconies. Had Rolina been taken by a party of barbarians? Then, from the balcony of her apartment, he heard a strange sound. It was a singing sound like nothing he'd experienced before. He paused, then approached the balcony cautiously. Rulina stood there, and she was singing. The wind caught her garments and spread them about her like strange multicoloured clouds. Her eyes were fixed on the far distance, and her throat vibrated with the sounds she made. So, she's casting a big spell to yep. save the day, and a huge ship rounds the headland... And it was the source of the strange green light, and it sailed rapidly, although there was no wind at all. So it's it's uh, it's the Margrave. Come back. Yeah, yeah. Save he's, the day. He's back. He's a bit dead. And uh, and his crew are a bit dead, but... There's a bargain. There's a bargain. The ship reached the cars when it stopped. It reeks of ozone and decay. And glance the crane and his men, because they're superstitious sorts, they all fuck off back into the forest, because they're a bit yeah. freaked out. The dead Margravine says, Ah, I need something from you in return. And he wants Rolina. He wants his missus back. Of course he does. He yeah. knows he's dead. Yeah. But it turns out they need Rolina to stay afloat. 
Yeah. And with that, when they're on board, they'll continue to live, even though it's uh, a living death. And they say, we are the slaves of Shul and Jaivan, for we died in the waters that he rules. Now let us be rejoined, my wife and myself. But, of course, Karam's not particularly happy with this. And he says, who is this Shul and Jaivan? And so, he is our master. He is of, conveniently enough, Svian Fan Labrul. Of course he is. The home of the gorged god. The place where Karam had meant to go anyway. Karam says, you know what? The dead have no right to take the living. And he starts to have a bit of a scrap with some of the corpses. So stop them, take me instead. But they're not having it. So he says, I'll come with you then. Yeah. And the margaring goes, all right. Could be worse. Yeah. Could be on my own. Fair play. With the dead fellas. So they get escorted to be led aboard the ship, covered in scum from the bottom of the sea. Weed draped off it, giving it the strange green fire. What Coram had thought were dull jewels were coloured barnacles which encrusted everything. Slime lay on all surfaces. While the Margrave watched from his poop, Coram and Relina were taken to a cabin and made to enter. It was almost pitch black and it stank of decay. He heard the rotten timbers creak and the ship began to move. It sailed rapidly without wind or any other understandable mean of propulsion. He sailed for Svi and Fan Labrul, the island of legends, the home of the gorged god. End of part one. Yep. See, that was alright, that one. It. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Um, you know, you've still got that kind of convenient get out of jail free cards that you tend yeah. to get with Mocock stuff, but it's all very cool and and really really well written. Yeah, it's good. I enjoyed it. It's mm. great. Yeah. And then uh, we meet Shul. Yeah, we'll get to that one next time. So, on this reread, are you still satisfied that Coram is still your favourite? Too right, yeah. He's he's not as to be honest. He's he, he's got he's got some excuses to be a bit cross, yeah. and be a bit grumpy, isn't he? Mm. His his entire family's wiped out. It's not like Elric, is it, where he's going, oh, I'm an emperor. Oh, Jesus, I'm an yeah. emperor. Oh. Born of chaos to oh, fight chaos. Oh. At least in this case, he's like, yeah, everything's been wiped out that I love. Not yeah. happy about that. Found a bit of solace. Even that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Coram's, Coram's a good lad, I think. Hmm. Not many laughs. No. But uh, I think he's all right. Yeah. And uh, And I still think it's really lovely writing yeah we'll be back next time to see how he obtains the hand of Rill <laughs> and the eye of yeah yeah let's not yeah um, not for a second episode running anyway okay so we shall bring it to a close there my friend Loz so thanks sure. once again for your time no bother and uh, I'll see you for the next part indeed we will draw <laughs> Thanks as always to Loz for being an excellent co-host, although recording two shows back-to-back may have been overly ambitious given our slate of ridiculous porters, but we got through it. Since our last outing, I'm delighted to say we have two more patrons, so huge thanks to John for exerting some sweat to service the Chaos Engine, and new Juggador Andrew, aka Kiha, a fellow podcaster currently in repose. His prodigious content is still available, just search for the Dissecting Worlds podcast. I'll put a link in the post blurb. Naturally, we remain hugely grateful to our other recent supporters, Mark, Neil, Loz, Craig and Steve, and of course, to our old hands Simon P, Simon R, Tom, Jim, David, Fred, Malpertui, and last, but by no means least, and in fact most of all, Lord Norman of the Higher Worlds, that most inscrutable, 
Baker on the rocks. Watch out for a recount of Gerard Arthur Connolly's encounter with that higher power shortly. It may not be accurate, of course. On the subject of GAC, chapter 2 of his journal will follow momentarily. But in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter, at Breakfast Ruins, on Instagram, at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us, if you use such outdated modes of communication, breakfastruins at outlook.com. Or you can drop by the Patreon page, or indeed breakfastintheruins.com and leave any comments. So, it's time. A transition approaches. I'll see you next time on the Moonbeam Roads. Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly, Chapter 2 Europe, but not as I have known it. Another inversion. Satisfied that my home county of Norfolk was many miles away and not on his list of potential allies of the enemy, Morton explained much to me. In the interest of minimising exposition, I shall summarise here. I was still in Europe. In fact, by my reckoning, I'd crashed somewhere in the Ardennes region on the borders of France and Belgium although those names had little, if any, meaning in this sphere. Similarities did exist, and in sufficient numbers that Morton and I had enough in common that we could converse freely and easily, and as we travelled east I would experience flashes of familiarity. These were quickly dismissed when we came across ruined areas of land upon which grew mutated, poisonous flora, or blasted heaths upon which nothing grew at all and, according to Morton, never had and never would. More disturbing still was the nature of the enemy, he described. The beast orders of Grand Bretagne were marching relentlessly into Europe and, it appeared, no city-state could stand before them. Their methods of war are nauseating and they've taken a terrible toll upon the inhabitants of any city, town or village that does not embrace their presence. Morton described his journey from his home in Scandia and his flight from the disastrous defence of Bruges. Other refugees on the road reported news of Colm, fallen two years since but risen in rebellion, and the Duke of Colm taken in chains to Londra, the capital city of the Dark Empire, to be presented to the ancient and godlike King Juan. I felt sickness welling up from the pit of my stomach as I heard more tales of the bloody crimes of my countrymen. We made for Saarbrück, a walled city just inside the country you and I would know as Germany. We were not alone. Many refugees and some surviving soldiery from encounters with the invaders were placing great faith in the Earl of Saarbrück and his walls of steel and stone. Many times we were forced to flee the roads when strafed by fire from gleaming, gull-winged flying machines. 
These ornithopters gushed steam from the joints of their colossal wings, which swept back as they dove and, spitting ruby lances of light, turned fleeing men, women and children into shrieking torches that ran on a few steps before falling, their clothes and flesh burning fiercely in the tallow of their body fat. So fierce is the power of these weapons that I saw steel armor fused with the bones of not only their wearer, but their unfortunate steed. I've witnessed the wholesale destruction of people before, but only ever from great distances, usually from above, aboard more elegant yet similarly deadly vessels of war. Those incidents seemed like several lifetimes ago and could not prepare me for this experience, made all the more visceral by the immediate sight, but also sound, smell, and even taste of human ruin. The dastardly craft would then scream overhead, trailing an acrid exhaust, then their wings flap like metal thunder, and away they flew, until the next time. This ritual was doubtless being repeated on all roads leading away from the battle zones. Morton would, wherever possible, lead me and any others who would follow along paths less trodden than the packed roads that so easily became charnel. We arrived in the vicinity of Sarbrook only in time to witness the fall of the walls and the slaughter of our brave defenders. It was near dusk on our third day of travelling together and we stood in a tree line with an unobstructed view across miles of vale. Arrayed before the walls was a morass of struggling men. The familiar sounds of a large engagement assailed our ears. The din was punctuated by harmonic cries of huge bell-shaped war engines that made short work of seemingly impregnable walls and shattered the minds of any defender upon them. The greasy, sutless smoke from an incinerated cavalry charge drifted across the fields of ruin and we heard the raucous roar of heavy foot infantry in snarling masks, crafted to resemble wolf, boar and goat. The ragged gaps in the once proud walls were flooded with ruby, black and gold armour and the grotesque banners of beast orders. The gates fell in with a groan, and the fight was over, but not the killing. That would last well into the night. Wails and screams pursued us east as we fled once more. We would learn some time later that the commander of the Grand Bretagne force was not content with the defeat of the garrison, and had ordered the sack of Sarbrook.